Hi, if I could take a moment of your time before we start. If you've enjoyed previous episodes or if you enjoy this episode, if you could subscribe on the platform that you listen to, that would be really helpful. It helps us get more guests and push the podcast forward. Thanks. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Car Chat Podcast. And with me today, I have Tristan Judge of The Market. Hello. Good afternoon. How are you doing today? Absolutely very well, thank you. Very well, been very busy, been rushing around trying to uh, keep the uh, keep the cars coming in, keep the cars going out, but it's been a very strong start to the year. So this is all good news. It's a good reason to be busy. Yeah, no, ideal. Can you tell the audience a little bit about sort of who you are, what you do? Personally, I background as an engineer and then got pulled into this uh, auction business, but the the market had started a year before I joined. My co-director had founded something called Patina, a database for classic car owners to put a, a repository, perhaps for putting all of their data, all of their car histories, etc., on a, in a digital format. Um, multiple uses, some of which have quite serious financial outputs, um, and some of which are just extremely useful for the classic car owner. It was all there as a deliberate attempt obviously there's a business in there mm. so uh tim tim jocelyn he was thinking of how to monetize that and one of the ways was to put all of that information in front of people and to make a better decision when buying a car all right and he did a test case with another auction house this is back in 2016 I think he had a Porsche uh, 944 Turbo, and there were two in this auction. He consigned his with the idea and, and, the, and, the, and the requirement that they would put the link to its patina entry with all of its history in the catalogue. And people did that, had a look, um, and the auction house said it was utterly fantastic because it meant 
a hell of a lot of people seen and knew a lot about the car long before the auction day. <laughs> um, and they, they, we had, they had visitors from the other end of the country come down specifically because they thought that car looked really good, etc. And it's only a sample of one, but basically the two Porsche 944s were very similar in the catalogue. Uh, and Tim's one reached half as much, twice as much as the other one did. Oh, wow. Which goes to prove the sort of the business model quite comfortably. After a few conversations, it became clear that the best way forward for this was for Tim to basically write the auction software on the front of the Patina database, from which he started selling cars, um, consigning a few. I joined in middle of 2016, Mm. and then... uh, We've been organically growing ever since. Last year, we sold over £10 million worth of car, which, well, there's a few auction sort of aggregator websites, etc. And they say we're sort of, well, they said we were fifth in the ranking of auction houses, which is not bad. It kind of means we're definitely not, uh, definitely not one of these startups in the bedroom anymore. Yeah. And, uh, but when we looked at the data a little more closely, he'd managed to put one auction house second and fourth. So we have a feeling that we might have been fourth overall, but it doesn't matter. It's it something to be proud of. No, that is. The, the idea of having all of that, that starting point of having all the information in a database that's online and, and viewable is, is great. And was that, was that owners just logging stuff in because they're like, oh, I like my car and I love putting, writing stuff on the internet? A bit, um, you've got the early adopters uh, and that sort of thing, but a lot of people were doing it because, well, there's a variety of reasons. One might be that, God forbid, your house has a flood or a fire or something, you've got a digital record of your car's history. You, If it's a racing car, as race results happen, you can put its next year's sort of you know results and what have you, and you've, you've instantly and forever got a... A full rundown of what it's what that car is and its heritage, its provenance, etc. The other one is, for instance, for insurance valuations. The insurance company don't really want. Well, you and I don't go to True Print anymore, and we don't print out three photos of our car. Yeah. Um, and a digital, um, yeah, the insurance companies would really rather like a digital filing cabinet rather than a painful physical one to go and rifle rifle through. And again, another one is, and this was very clear right from the start, if you've got a car of value and it's an international car, you know, a car for an international market, it's quite difficult to send the paperwork internationally to a potential interested party in America. But this way, you can literally just send them a link just like that and they can go through it. You can put all the photos of, as we do now in the auctions, in the early days, people could put their photos of, corners dents underneath all the oil leaks i don't know you photos of anything and everything mm. to properly display a car for somebody who's a million miles away yeah cuz i've i've had relatively minimal auction car buying experience but i've been to a couple of auctions and looked at a couple of cars i've interested in and you historically don't get to you get a story about the car <laughs> this model was made in blah 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 and and all that sort of stuff and then you'll get four, five, six p- pictures in the catalogue because paper costs money and they don't want to have 100 million in there. Um, exactly. And then you turn up and you have to go and ask for the file and then you have to pour around the car and all that sort of stuff, which is, is fine if you can go to the auction. But 
they're not necessarily in the most convenient of times, places for everyone. And you can do a bit of research and save yourself a wasted journey or do a bit of research and make sure that that would be a fantastic journey to make. I mean, we, we're definitely, whilst we've, you know, we were first with this, I suppose you could call it a bringer trailer model for those yep. familiar with the, the platform over in America. We're, we're the first ones in the UK with it. But we also know there is definitely room for both types of business model. The physical auction house can be a great social event. You can push and poke and do all the things you want to do with a car. You can see lots of them in one go. You might very much go with a couple of mates and have a, a beer or a burger or whatever it is alongside. There is that business model in the auction world at the big events, the big events where there might be a certain degree of machoism, yeah. trying to outbid on some of these very um, prestigious motor cars and where the auctioneer is quite right to spend a bit of time, effort and money doling out the champagne and the, and the caviar and the, and the whatever. And there is undoubtedly business models. You know, there's dual, there's room for both in this world. That's for sure. That's yeah. for sure. I've definitely experienced the in-person, um, who was, I was, I think it was Max Gerardo uh, selling something. I can't remember what it was, but I'm pretty sure the two people in the room that wanted it ended up paying a lot more than otherwise they would have done, which you always say. And I've always wondered with some crazy auction pricing, whether they're actually buyers. There's this, this sort of rumor <laughs> mill that goes around and goes, yeah, but was someone else bidding it up in the room? Did it really sell? I if guess- it goes crazy, if it goes crazy like that and it goes a bit extreme, then you can be absolutely sure that it's two people who have got, well, sometimes you might say auction fever. Other times you definitely say that it's the new pricing level for that particular maker model. It's quite clear the last couple of weeks uh, or the last couple of months, there's been in the UK a couple of Audi Quattro 20 valve cars go through and they have reached new levels, absolutely new levels. One was just this weekend gone. And the first time you might say, oh, my goodness, two people have got a bit crazy. They've had a bit too much wine or whatever it is. Um, But no, it's just where the new level is. In that case, it's catching up to where Germany has been for a few years. Um, And if you're shrewd, you've been watching that and hoping it happens on your watch while you own a car. And presumably loving data. You guys are watching all of these things, all the the sales on your own website, obviously, because that's automatically catalogued and tracking different cars and how they're doing and and all that sort of stuff. We do. It's slightly scary sometimes watching which ones are going down, which ones are going up. We've got a little, we've got a handful of um, clever little robots, which we don't even have to feed them. They disappear off across <laughs> the internet, across the classified sites, et cetera, et cetera, a load of dealer sites, picking up advertised prices. I stress that they're not the sold yeah. prices, and we all know that there can be a huge difference there. And they can spot the trends. You can spot the trends, and there have been times when you can go, oh, that's definitely been dropping since a peak three years ago, even though you know a lot of the advertised prices genuinely lag the drop. It's yeah. definitely, there's a time lag there. And then you can sometimes see, wow, my God, what happened here? Um and you could see things have doubled in a couple of, well, in six months, say, or something like that. Fascinating. You just wish you had the wherewithal, the nous and the confidence to bought just at the right time, of course. Ah, uh, yeah. But this data is also only picked up after the fact, <laughs> rather than before. Uh, 
we can be fantastically wise after the fact. <laughs> what skill that takes a lot of lot of practice. Yeah. Does. <laughs> What's doubled in the last six months? The market has been very strong. I mean, this is this last twelve months have been like no other, as we all know. Mm. Yeah, it's quite scary. It's certainly to christen a new word. It's unforecastable. Right. Uh, yeah, at the start of March this time last year. We were thinking, oh, my goodness gracious me, what the hell's going to go on? This could be a car crash. It could be whatever. It took a few weeks for new normal to occur. We were obviously able to sort of keep going through all of that. The physical auction guys had to hold fire for several months. Yeah. And it appeared that the world was still turning, which obviously, as we now look back, not just in the classic car world, but in, in so many ways, the world did keep turning. Look back 12 months, and it was an incredibly strong time for classic car prices and the classic car market. Maybe it's uh, yeah, people not going on holiday, having more time, tinkering in the garage, wanting something to tinker with in the garage. Maybe they've had a bit too much time with their families and need some space. <laughs> There's all sorts that we, uh, we, we've heard about. But the stuff that's gone up is undoubtedly, exclusively the modern classic. Okay, and what would you define um, as that, the modern Yeah, classic? well, I, I shall never be uh, tied down to such a statement. Um, <laughs> but anything, that, anything that's gone up, I can crudely put in there and claim it. But um, 80s, 90s, 2000s sort of stuff. It's been seen for many a year. Yeah, the last three or four years, you've been seeing it happen. But it's been particularly clear in these last few, lastly, this last 12 months. It depends. It can be anything from Sierra Cosworths. It can go through some of the nice BMWs, Mercedes. Rumour has it, and we've just, we've just sold a, an Integrale. Yeah, mm. a hell of a car, an iconic car, a, a amazing thing. And that has, we've just sold it for a price that when we first started talking to him several months ago, we wouldn't have even attempted to put a reserve on like that. But... You know, rumour has it and data's thin, but let's we've just got to go for it. And sure enough, we got this higher price that it, you know, it's 10 grand more than it may have been so six or seven months ago. For 60 grand? That's the one. That's the one. I was just having a browse through the recent oh, stuff yeah. and notable things that were interesting to me. And, and uh, the Lancia Delta Integrale Evo 2 was one of those items. Um, well, just to make the set, uh, Sam, we've got an e- M3, E30, M3 Evolution just turned up as let well. Let me so just I... look at one of my other tabs saved of cars that were interesting. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, I mean, I had the joy with that car, with one of those cars, not that one, that I bought an E30, M3 20 years ago mm. when uh, it was my first sort of proper classic that I can get my teeth into. It was. I paid nine thousand pounds for it. Oh, nice! And it didn't matter at the time, price-wise, whether it was an Evo or not. They were oh. all the same price, and mine was an Evo. <laughs> I wish this was a scientific answer that I can claim. Uh, you know, kudos on forever. But I think, like most things, it's just you hope you choose the right things, and it's good luck. Yeah, and then you you move on, drive other cars, whatever, look back and go, oh, yeah, it was quite cool at the time. But The demographic of the people buying the cars is definitely quite clear. For The E-types went ballistic at the 50th anniversary. We're now at the 60th. Mm. Um, they sort of doubled through that year, and it's, it's, it's been a regular sort of quote of how anniversaries make a massive difference to every car. So every single car since then 
people have been trying the 30th, the 40th, the 50th, the yeah. 17th birthday. And, and it was the E-type that did it. It was the E-type that did it. Most of the rest haven't. But the last three years on E-types have been hard work and, and not just E-types. It's been on any car of the 50s and 60s, whether it be a Healy or a Triumph TR or any of those. Um, and they've gently been sagging back. But the joy is we can probably say that in this last 12 months of a positive, strong market, that descent has, has stabilised. Mm. And all of these 50s, 60s cars have, have definitely stabilised. In fact, we've sold a couple of E-types recently that makes us think maybe there is a bit of a, a 60th anniversary bounce about to happen or happening or whatever. It's a, it's a fabulous time. And now the spring is here and the sunshine has just about come out. It's great. Yeah, everyone's looking at what they want to buy. I've definitely spent far too much time on Auto Trader and everything over the last year, just sitting there logging a lot of hours, looking at things and, and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> what have you? What have you? Have you bought? I haven't. I've resisted. Uh, uh, <laughs> I need. To, I probably need to sell before I can buy. Ah, uh, got... well, we can help you with that. But um, it is one of the joys of this job was in theory being able to sample all of these motor cars mm. without having to actually buy them. Um, now, if we weren't so busy, I might have actually had a chance to sample <laughs> a few more of them. But it is quite fascinating watching, you know, as an enthusiast five years ago, um, and now having been well and truly immersed in it for these last sort of five years, how my choices have changed and how my criteria have changed. Um, and thankfully, I've managed to do that without making some foolish purchases which undoubtedly would otherwise have happened. But my family and my wife, I definitely would have said I've still made one or two foolish purchases, but uh, I've probably reduced reduced the number. Recognising the difference when you don't have to have a concourse car or even a restored car to have an absolutely lovely thing to own. Mm. And, you know, people get obsessed with this and that. Matching numbers is a lovely one that I, I keep hearing and, you know, it has a relevance to some people, and that is absolutely fair enough. But if it's got the right engine and it's got and it's tuned well and it's in beautiful condition, go out and enjoy the car. Yeah, it's Just a go car. Out and enjoy the car. <laughs> it's designed to be driven. I'm, yeah. I know when values start getting really high, you have to distinguish. Oh, but we get, we get people sort of ringing up about a Mercedes 500 SL, you know, 20 grand's worth of. And the question is, is it matching numbers? Is it matching numbers? Is it? And it's like, who knows? Um, you can go and get the stats out of Mercedes from the factory. I mean, some people, you know, are asking without knowing what the, what the question is. But, it, yeah, engines went pop in the 70s. Quality yeah. control wasn't what it was, what it is today. And engines had to get replaced. So, you know, as long as it's the correct style of E-type engine in this E-type, yeah, really. Yeah, it's not like they were born. Okay, they were sort of born together, but they're not born. It's just a part. Yeah, it is just, it's it's one of those things. I obviously, my day-to-day -day job involves being involved in, in the money side of classic cars. Mm. It's, it's natural. But I do get tired of hearing people just saying about money, money, money to do with this car, to do with their car. Yeah. And it's and it's as if have you did you enjoy it? Did you actually go out and do something with it? No, I have the right to a profit. I there's no way I can have a loss. Okay, okay, um, and it, it does. It's quite sad sometimes. And I know that lots of our customers and lots of any you know classic car owners have far more than just money as their as their 
priorities. But it is, it does get a bit, it's a bit of a shame sometimes when you hear this, particularly this, I have a right to a profit. And that yeah, includes yeah. The, uh, the work I did on it last week. Do people when say I repaired the clutch. that phrase? Oh, God, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right and it's fascinating. It's, uh, yeah, and some, yeah, it's, it's what's happened over the last 10 years, isn't it, that you felt you did have the right to profit. You only had yeah. to – everyone thought they were brilliant car dealers at home. But the reality is the prices were just rising all over the place. Mm. And if you just held on to it long enough – I mean, some dealers – that was their business model. They priced it outrageously to start with yep. and then thought they were brilliant because in 18 months' time they had sold it for this outrageous price. But actually what happened is just the prices had risen to meet it. I had a lovely analogy from a gentleman a year or two back, a lovely old, uh, a lovely old chap who said, yeah, I don't, I, I'm going to sell it for what it's worth. There's no need to be a profit. It'll be sell for what it's worth. He said, it's a hobby. It's a hobby that I've earned my money and this is what I do with it. And he said, I also play golf. I like playing golf and I go down to the club secretary in March and I give him £4,000. And then through the summer, I have lots and lots of rounds of golf. And that's great. In November, I don't go back to him, the club secretary, and ask for my £4,000 back, do I? It's what, you know, these are hobbies. You accept, accept that sometimes they, they cost you a lot of money. Yeah, but you get enjoyment out of it. And there's, like you said, there's been lots of people that have bought cars over however long, and they've been lucky that they've gone up in price. But exactly, like you can't guarantee any of these things. There is no, no sort of the price is the price. Ultimately, it's supply and demand. The car, classic car world, is purely supply and demand. If you're buying a brand new car, there's the cost of the metal and the labour and the plastic and the whatever. That, that, that's a bottom floor to the price. But in the classic car world, it's absolutely purely supply and demand. The only bottom floor to a value of any particular car pretty much is scrap value, you know, a parts yeah. value. That's about it. Everything else is where how many people want it and how many are around. And if more people want it than are available at the time, the price goes up. And it's as simple as that. So, you know, the price is the price. The demographics move. I have guys who say, who ring up and say, oh, but my E-type, it can't go down. It's got to keep going up. It's got to keep going up. It's got to keep my XK, my Healy. I mean, why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they? And, you know, when, when maybe somebody makes a comment of, well, they've got to, E-types have got to go up. Nobody's, nobody's making them anymore, are they? <laughs> and I go, that's not the point. The point is that in the top of the classic car market, wherever you decide the, the new, the modern classic starts or whatever, yeah. there are currently thousands of XJSs or XK8s or XKRs pouring into the classic car park. Yeah. You know, they're pouring in and they are where the demographic is going and they're also piling in and expanding the classic car pool the classic car supply. So, you know, they're only worth what somebody else is willing to pay. Absolutely. Yeah. And absolutely. I think it, a, a really good way of looking at it, and it's, I think it's quite highlighted by your 50th anniversary of the E-Type thing, actually, um, is if you say to someone, if they've got kids, you really like this, does your kid like it as much as you like it? Because those are the buyers in the future. And each car has like an age timeline. Oh, um, it's what's on your... I mean, the classic thing is, it's as a kid, what was the poster on your wall? Hmm. Which car was it? And 
for my sort of era, it was probably your Testarossas and your Kuntashis yeah. and your F40s, etc. But for my parents, baby boomers, they were the ones who wanted E-types, XKs, Heelys, etc. And, and the, all those beautiful 60s cars, those individual cars. And the baby boomers were the first recent category of, of demographic who had money. They had money. They had lovely pensions, et cetera, et cetera. So when they retired, yeah, that's what they did. That's what they bought it. That's what they went and paid for. And that was demand. So they went and, and classic cars had got to the point with those 50s, 60s cars that they were a little more usable for the man in the street, you know, the retired gentleman. I can say this from experience because my, my parents 20 years ago bought an E-Type. Yeah. No idea what to do with it apart from enjoy it. No, no intention of mucking around with it. I don't know where I got my car jeans, but age two, I knew what more about cars than they did. And yeah, that went up, but that was pure luck. And thankfully, I'm lucky enough. You know, my old man passed away recently. I'm lucky enough that the uh, the car's in my garage, but it's mm. not perfect by any stretch. But it's a lovely old thing to tool around in. But you look at other investment categories. We all know the stock market could go down as well as up. Yep. Well, actually, it's the same with all of this stuff. Wine comes and goes, doesn't it? Brown furniture. When my, when I was a kid, brown furniture was our parents' sort of be-all and end-all, wasn't it? They were going out and buying this that, and the other. It's worthless now unless you've got Queen Anne this or whatever yeah. it is. It's absolute, It's it's virtually worthless now. It's tastes. It moves around. Clocks were a great thing five years ago. They've sort of quartered in value since. So why would cars be any different? No, it's 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 a very interesting thing to look at because I think the more you get involved in the car industry and whatever, you get drawn into different niches and find things that you like and whatever. And there's a, a decent amount of people that are sort of heavily into cars and all of the above. But then the rest of the world are not so interested, but they might like cars. And they're yeah. probably a significant portion, they are, of car buyers. I wonder, I mean, possibly a, a topic for a, a further conversation because I've got to wonder about when the electrification really kicks mm. in and autonomous cars, but as an engineer in the past, I'm pretty sure that autonomous cars won't be with us until after I'm pushing up the daisies in any in any way that hampers a classic car owner, at least, yeah. put it that way. These cars are becoming superb. Modern cars, a modern Fiesta Polo, Number one, they're absolutely stunning. They're not like it was when I was a kid when they were a bit cranky here and there. They've been engineered utterly amazingly and they are reliable and they're basically they're a commodity and you can't tell the difference between them pretty much. And when even when I was a kid, you know, my parents or people around would say, we've always had Lanciers, we're always going, I'm a, I'm a Vauxhall man myself, I'll always have Vauxhalls. And there's a bit of brand loyalty and a bit of enjoyment and a bit of passion. But now they are absolutely fantastic commodities mm. and when they go to be yeah people, the youngsters today my kids here they might not even have to own them particularly so i do wonder you know have they got a passion for it and then when they go electric well it's even more of a white box a washing machine they're brilliant they're fantastic and i mean the environmental thing is very questionable um, until until several things sort of change in our electrical infrastructure, but those are those are commodities. And does that mean that whereas in my age group, you might say fifteen twenty percent of 
my age group like cars and might contemplate a classic in the future because they were brought up that way. Mm-hmm. You know, if 10% of, say, say 10% of my age group, is it only going to be 7% of that current age group who have a car thing going on? It's very, it's very, very possible that it just, you know, it gets smaller and smaller over time as less people are using and buying and driving cars. That, I think, it's, it's, it's a conversation for that hyper-theoretical six pints in sort of conversation, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? That uh, I'm more than happy to uh, pontificate to anyone who wishes to take me on at the bar, so to speak. But um, where it goes, I mean, it's, it's so far away that it's not to be concerned about now. Yeah. But uh, it's an interesting moot point. It is, it is for sure. Historically, uh, if, you, if we look at cars that have been... Uh, and okay, there are examples that are not these, but the most expensive cars of all time have generally been a car that you can road drive on the road that is also a race car that has won a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And if we look at cars that have done that, mm-hmm. 250 GTO, F1 GTR, I would say is probably the last of that, maybe. Race cars have become more and more specialised that they're so unrelated to the road that they do become but that's why whenever there's a change in the Le Mans rules or the touring car rules to bring it back to more what a, what a punter can see on the street people get excited and it sort of works um and so there's yeah it's, it is interesting to see the Porsches Ferraris Fords Astons at Le Mans at the moment because you can relate to them but those cars there's no way they're ever going to be road cars those actual race cars no. that you've seen there they and so they, that immediately, immediately narrows their market. Selling race cars is always a niche thing, and you you, know, you generate interest. If it has the dual purpose, as you say, in the old days of um, running road and race, the joy of the GTR, um, the F1 McLaren, is that it was a road car. Yeah. It was genuinely a road car that got turned into the most fantastic and successful race car. And I agree with you. I mean, the F40 is another one that's sort of that refugee halfway between yeah. the two. Um, and why it's always had that kudos. Yeah, it's always risen above so many of the others. Yeah, and you look at it and, you know, people buy cars for different reasons. But I think one of the reasons why people seem to spend more money, you might disagree, is stories or sort of provenance of sorts, whether it's, you know, it was raced by this person at this thing blah 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 all of that adds a lot onto the value of a car massively massively um and originality I, there was a um i think it's the art curial um sale at the uh, what would have been the retromobile a couple of months ago down in, in paris and they had a gorgeous collection of highly thoroughbred group b rally cars but the one that got the headlines was the audi quattro s1 and the reason it did even though it was a car that never raced in Group B, was because what it was, it was built for the race of champions. A year or so, if I remember rightly, a year or so after Group B had been cancelled, it had a lot of the Evo parts that otherwise weren't available on the, on the rally cars because the, the, the development got stopped with, uh, with that tour de course tragic accident. And then it has literally done one small event and then been preserved in Aspic. So... So many of those Group B cars then disappeared into, and and so many of them got used in national rally championships, beaten up here and there. I mean, 
remember watching Murray Walker commentating about Rallycross in those years afterwards. And all of these 205s and 6R4s and Lance, even the Lancia Delta was doing the Rallycross circuit. And anyone who remembers those, fantastic entertainment, but the cars came off second best. Definitely. So to have a car that hasn't gone through that and then been rebuilt and how much of it was original, etc., to have something that came out of the Audi workshop, got used by some serious drivers in a public arena and then got mothballed. That's why it went absolutely crazy, was it? It's a new rally car record anyway, that's for sure. Yeah. And I look at cars like that and go, that's just damn cool. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. So cool. Absolutely. There is this thing, though, I'm with, I think uh, Mr. Clarkson said this a few years back. I, as a kid, always, always lusted after the Stratos of the 70s. The Stratos mm. and the CSL Mercedes were my two pinnacle cars of the 70s when sort of 70 cars, 70s cars weren't even cool back then when I was, I was young. It wasn't that long ago, but some people might say otherwise. And um, the Stratos was definitely one of my pinnacle cars. But I now know enough that I'm absolutely delighted to see one, to experience one, to witness one, to be involved in one, but I'm really glad someone else owns it. (laughs) There is this class of car that you just, thank God they exist, thank God they're out there. If money was limitless, of course I would, but the reality is, yeah, it's it's, it's, it's wonderful to admire somebody else going through that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. All of the highs and all of the lows of owning... (sighs) Certain cars. Well, the joy is if you see it at an event, it's either just looking beautiful and not being tested statically on a grass yeah. Yeah, lawn, or they've got it working and it's looking fam- fabulous. You miss out on the seven days of testing to get the thing, damn thing working beforehand. Yeah, um, and that's... The, I'm not about that too much. I would like a car to just start and go use it yeah. well don't you and i share a, um, a bit of racing i mean I've, I've done a i do a little bit of catering racing but mm. i think we share the idea that we've done c1s these yes. citroen c1s yes um you've done a 24-hour race yes we've done a we've done a couple of them and it's just that get in and go and race and drive the little wheels off the thing you don't have, yeah the catering is a modern catering with a fuel injected engine it's just you don't have to sit there playing with carburetor jets yeah and, and then getting to the, the start line and finding that the alternators failed or something. Absolute joy. I think, how did you do in the 24-hour? So with the first one we did, which was Spa, I think we came like eighth or something like that, which was which was we were very, very happy with. And then every time, every time we've done it since, we've come nowhere near. <laughs> <laughs> we've had... Didn't I hear that you said that you'd, uh, you'd, you'd also been denied a serious position by the people at the front who were cheating. Uh, Unbelievable. Oh, yeah, we got knocked down one. Yeah, the, the people at the front had, they were plugging something into their, I think, OBD2 and doing a remap yep. or something. It was something weird. They, they definitely had more horsepower than everyone else. It, it was it is very strange, an event like that. Anyway, anyway, you know, Spa, the Spa 24-hour is an amazing thing as they they do a rolling start and as the first cars and there are two cvs of all descriptions aren't there in these yeah. things so you can, one of them you're just about to overtake and another one comes blasting past with some bmw motorbike engine under the bonnet on the first lap the first people are braking for Le Coombe at the end of the big straight the camel straight there are still people going around <laughs> yeah. la source hairpin yeah. it's just 
bananas. 120, I think, is their regulation. Yeah, it's, some, it's something like that. It's, it's, it's 125 or whatever, oh. the cars, which is just, it's unbelievable when you're on track with that number of cars. Because yeah. I guess for most people, if you went on a track day, we might have been to, I don't know, Silverstone when they've done like a 100 car day. And it's, you're not really allowed to overtake on those sorts of track days because it's with no. permission on the right side or whatever. Whereas this is just like, do what you want. It's great. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and then going into, you get the safety car and half the people have put their CD player on and are learning Italian whilst they trundle behind the safety car for half an hour as somebody sort of ran out of talent and turned upside down in a gravel track. All people are just uh, ignoring uh, that seems to be a thing. At night yeah. at spa, people just do whatever they like. And I, I realised very quickly as you're like trundling down past behind a 2CV that's going 20 miles an hour, someone else just, four people just hoof past you. You're like, but we're yeah. behind the safety car. And they're like, yeah. yeah, but I don't give a shit. <laughs> I'm, I'm British. I obey the rules. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> so I've adapted my stance on that one. And uh, I, I, I do, shouldn't do try that at the do. British. Silverstone's coming up. We've just put our entry in. But uh, it's, it's amazing. I had the, um, one of the night shifts at Spa, and the rumour was, looking at the weather, that it was going to be wet, but only sort of a 30% chance of half a millimetre, which I was gutted by because... With our catering experience, we can we can deal with the wet, and there were a lot of novice drivers who couldn't. Yeah. So as long as you dodged them, um, you were all right. For three, four, five laps going up the Kemmel Strait, and you in a C one, you have got time to look around a bit, um, and you could see these amazing lightning show going on <laughs> about five miles away, coming slowly closer, and you're going, "Wow, that's lovely, that's amazing." I, I wonder if that's going to do its half a millimeter. I'd like a bit of rain though. Come on, come on, bring it on. Half a lap later, at one point, it's deluged down. You couldn't see the track. You couldn't see the cars disappearing off left, right and centre. The fast wipers weren't enough. And, and Blanchiment, in the dark, if you were behind another car, even vaguely, you were just trusting to God. That was a, that was a new experience. Yeah. Um, but managed to hold it together. And, uh, and by the end of it, didn't want to come in. No, no, let me uh, keep going. I want to keep going. Who cares about fuel? It's those moments where you really sort of feel like you've learnt, experienced, come through, as long as you come through. It's like it's just completely different to a dry afternoon for 20 minutes. Oh, oh yeah, 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 absolutely. Love, I do love the endurance racing from that point. I mean, it can be expensive. This obviously isn't. People will say, oh, it's a cold, it's a, it's a boring, slow C1. How the hell can you get enjoyment? Well... If you pump the tyres up very high at the rear and you hit the brakes entering a corner, you can be absolutely broadside. But the most important thing is every other person is in the same car. Yeah. So it's relative. If you're in a C1 and some fast cars are constantly going past, that's not the same. But because everything on the grid is the same, I go back to this thing about remembering what cars are for. Enjoy them. Enjoy what they can bring you. Exactly. Um, and yeah, it doesn't have to be. You'd have to be have a. You don't have to have the biggest, flashiest thing to have the most fun. And I did a, a we did a track day in the C1 early to sort of just see if we could learn how to drive it a bit quicker um, at Silverstone. And we were going past like cars that have horsepower 
These things have like 67 horsepower and you go through Maggots Beckett's like fully like kind of sideways on the way in, sideways on yeah. the way out. And you just go past someone in like an M3. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. It's great. They never let you through on the corners, the swines. Um, but uh, no, it's absolutely. And the, and, and the look on their faces yeah, as you do go, as they let you pass, there's, it's there's quite amusing. Nothing like driving a slow car faster than another car on a track day. It's like it's in, insanely satisfying experience the caterham's great for that because you know they are there's a fast lap time in those um and uh you can easily mix it with a reasonably well driven i don't know nissan gtr or something yeah. like that and uh and you're just willing the ability to go around the outside of them around stowe yes on a track day you just want to do it because i know i've done it in something like the burkitt six hour relay but to do it on a track day would just just cement a lovely day I'll, I'll admit i may i generally try and avoid your sort of standard track days now mainly because yeah. i'm in quick ish stuff the odd rma day where you're allowed to overtake on left and right maybe in the afternoon you, you <laughs> just yeah if you're in something that's super planted around the outside it's, it's, it's sort of acceptable i think absolutely absolutely just don't do it with me <laughs> one time, I seem to remember one time being overtaken around the outside on a track day by a Porsche 917. <laughs> now, that, w- that was special. I allowed him that. I gave him a wave. Yeah, fair play, fair play. <laughs> that was a long time ago now. It is very easy to get used to sort of one's own track experience, whatever that is, and go, okay, well, I'm comfortable in my car and I'm, I've done a bit of racing, so I'm used to other cars. But someone might be going out for their first lap. They've bought a... 488 pista and they're driving around and you're like yeah i'll go through abbey farm around you around the outside and then <laughs> and like, it's a no. straight isn't that one in my car that's a straight <laughs> yeah, yeah. around abbey <laughs> no it's um i had a really good day yesterday in my radical um sr3 and i got to drive a revolution have you seen that as well it's, i'm not so familiar with those okay i so, don't i they, they've, they've got too many slick tyres and wings. It's and a lot of that stuff. Me. A lot of that yeah. stuff. As much as I, I like driving all sorts of cars, and I like driving the C1 that's like super loose, and you've got to be loose to be fast. That you're not like finally you're over, all yeah. over the limit. But then there's something else about being in a high downforce car that you go through. Yeah, maggots Beckett's like flat on the way in, slight lift at sort of mm. 125 or something. Just. But after sort of two thirds of the day, my neck just like oh. head just slops to one side and the other. But yeah. it's, um, it's we've done we've done plenty of series a whole year of you know caterums or something mm. like that, and then you go back and do one or two races a year. You dip in, you you remember what it was all about: the barbecues, the beer, the the, the paddock life, and all that fun. But you're out on the track, and Anglesey was one of the most amazing. I mean, it's a phenomenal circuit, cool Anglesey, and beautiful, but. You go out on that, and in the catering, you have to wring its neck to be doing well on the grid. Mm. My hands and arms are just knackered, absolutely. Oh, yeah. You know, I come off and I've got rigor mortis almost, you know. Can't move them. But the other joy is actually if you, we've a couple of times taken the C1 and and the catering to, to the same day mm. or test day or something. And driving the two back-to-back is quite fascinating. And I appreciate some of the audience might like the line, you know, I'm just about to jump in my other race car. <laughs> others, are, others are used to that, quite, you know, quite familiar with that sort of concept. But for us, it was quite fun. But the C1, 
you realise you have to actually be quite perfect with it on the buttons, on the turning point, on the apex, mm. on the whatever, to get the lap time out because you can't just use the power to recover. All that stuff that you learn as a, yeah, with your instructor or whatever of being absolutely on point, on point, on point. You then drive back, get, jump back in the C1 and go, I just rag this. Oh, no, so jump back in the caterer and you go, I just rag this like hell, don't I? If I was to concentrate a bit more like <laughs> I did in the C1, I might be faster. Um, but yeah, it it's all part of the fun. translates back. Because mm. I have a tendency to, I probably it's probably called overdrive. That's the uh, the phrase. Um, <laughs> but but I would say I probably do it because it's fun. So more slip angle than needed, and more opposite lock than needed. But yep. you go and drive your C one, and you just get punished for losing any speed whatsoever as you're sitting on the straight for four minutes. And Absolutely. that definitely you come back into something that's quicker and you still it still lingers in your brain that like maybe too much slip is not a good thing. And like, <laughs> I'm losing speed and like it's a look good on your YouTube channel. Yes. Looks fast. Yes. Yes. Larry. <laughs> I, I thought um, Tiff is quite good at that in all of his, his videos. They're always exceptionally frantic. But And he's absolutely realised, he's like, well, what looks fast and interesting on a camera is frantic, lots of oversteer, all this sort of stuff. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. and he often says that as well. Yeah. The car review on Top Gear is different from the Stig drive, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And then you see different, different stuff. All the cars that are sold on the website, do they all come to you first or do they go from seller to buyer direct? Uh, we have a variety. We have two options. Um, we've done a sort of hybrid model. So you've got the classic online auction alternative, started off possibly by eBay, where you, you just you keep the car at your home. Mm. Um, but we don't let people particularly do their own photos. Um, we want to send them a photographer. We then get the write-up done in the same way. But, you know, you have to host any viewings, should they happen, and that sort of thing. We encourage people to go and view. But a lot of people don't want to do that as a seller. They just yeah. aren't interested. Um, they just want to say, here are the keys, you do it. And so we have what we call our concierge option. We've got, we've just moved into a fantastic new, was it 13,000 square feet building locally here in Oxfordshire. And we could take in 50-odd, 60-odd cars in there. And they pay a little bit extra. Our photographer guys on site are absolutely fabulous, as many people sort of comment and say the photography standard is superb, particularly for the two guys that we've got, you know, two or three guys we've got on on, on the base. And But at the end of the day, the premium is the same. It's a, just a convenience thing. Um, but it does mean we have a very nice toy, toy shed. Yes, yes, which I'm looking forward to coming to visit at some point. I see some of <laughs> these the, icons. The challenge is... Because we are on very low fees and, and all the rest, the challenge is it's a production line. Yeah. You know, if I'm being brutal, you have to say, yeah, we, we try and make sure we are absolutely professional and personal to every single person. But it is a production line. And if you came three weeks later, <laughs> the intention is that um, it's a completely different 50, 60 cars in yeah. that building, which is it's quite a challenge and it's part of what we've been doing for the last five years. Um, of making sure that it, it runs as slickly and as smoothly and as as well as we can. Yeah. So you're, you're saying if I would come to visit, I should come to visit sort of little and often 
rather than <laughs> to see the greatest scope of, yeah. of vehicles. If, and we do have them. I mean, last week we had stuff from a 1950s Riley saloon through to uh, the Integrale, through to a uh, an Audi R8, and, you know, at, at a beaten-up Land Rover Series 1 and a Sierra Cosworth in between. Um uh, absolutely it's a, all church yeah we're seeing we're starting to see on your style of website these sorts of things um we're seeing some really expensive cars being sold recently i guess ultimately that is a private sale and if there's any problems with these cars or anything like that they've not gone through a dealership it's all sight as seen um like i don't know if you bought some old classic car and it turned out to be a replica or something you're like you're kind of stuffed it is a if you're not comfortable with buying and selling through a physical auction that have been there for millennia you know in theory the auction is the purest form of sale and has been going since time immemorial if you're not comfortable with the fact that there are no warranties there are no guarantees then our version you probably should stay clear and pay. You might pay a bit extra, but you get more reassurance if you go to a dealer and a warranty and a, and a, and a ability to go back. What we do definitely do, though, is we've got 200 photos of every car. We've not just got a picture of the outside 200 times. We've got all the nooks and crannies, and we tell our photographers and our sellers, you will put the, the, the good, bad, and the ugly yeah. up there. And then the write-up is is tries to be extensive. We put every page that we've got of any service history to try and be as clear and as transparent as possible. And this is the other one that that that, that people slightly have a surprise to hear, but that works every time. The more transparent you are, the better the bidding and the better the final price. And that's not just on one auction, that's on doing your whole business mantra from start to finish. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a, it relates to that. So if people trust what you're trying to say, we're not experts, we're not inspectors. We definitely tell everyone and, you know, look at our terms, look at our frequently asked questions. You've got to go and be happy that what you're looking at is what you want. And you're more than, you're encouraged to view or in these COVID times, if you can't travel, then send an inspector. It's usually the best two, 300 quid you can ever spend send one of these professional inspectors and do that and make sure you're happy with what you've got. Um, but we do say that if we've missed something significant, if it doesn't go into gear, if it, you know, if the whole left-hand side of the car is scraped down a wall, yeah. then, um, you know, we will remedy the situation completely and return the money because, or, and tell the sellers to return the money because whilst it is a private sale and it is buyer beware, these things have to be, you know, considered. However, we like to have made sure that the car has been checked to go into gear and we've taken it around the block. And we would always have photos of the left-hand side of the car as well as the right. Yeah. With the idea that things aren't hidden. Oh, I think from my minor experience selling stuff on eBay, I'm, I'm <laughs> the person that's taking pictures of every single scratch, everything whatsoever, because I'm just like, well... If I don't tell you, you might complain. And like, you, you, you don't win. You do not win by not telling. The, the buyer wants to, if you say this is exactly what it is, they don't have to allow 
a percentage for it might not be what it is. So therefore, I'm not going to bid what I would actually pay. The risk premium. Mm. How much would you put on? Because you're not quite sure. You presume the worst, et cetera, et cetera. It is a, it is a balancing act. One of the joys, actually, of, uh, that we saw is a, a natural side effect of what we do is, is the quality of cars that gets given to us and the type of car that gets given to us. People often ring up and say, do you only do nice cars? Because I've got something, it's a bit average and it's a bit fun, but it's just, I say, yeah, of course we do, of course we do. It's just, yeah, it's value is its value, it's no problem. Uh, But they say, um, well, you only seem to have nice cars. No, what happens is, you know those dodgy sellers that we all know out there who try and tart up something that shouldn't be tarted up and try and make it look shinier than it really is? You might say lipstick on a pig. They naturally don't tend to come to us because they know we're going to describe it properly. I'm not going to say we're going to say this car has been tarted up horrifically for sale and run a mile, but I am going to say, you know, look at some of the facts here. So those sellers, thankfully, tend not to come our way, which is a bit of natural selection, a bit of Darwin going on. Yeah, no, it's good. And it encourages people to be, well, if you're honest... It is what it is, and you get the you yeah. get the value. The the price that cars sell for on your website, you're just like, that is the market value. Yeah. I mean, we started off little, and even when we were little with just a few thousand bidder accounts, I was confident then that things don't slip through the net. Mm. And the theory is, if you've got, you know, if you stand back, as I say, the auction is the purest form of sale. If you present your goods well and you advertise your goods well, in that theoretical perfect world we all sort of vaguely maybe remember from maths, mechanics or something, A-level, in that theoretical world, every single car will get the same price no matter who is auctioning it. Yeah. It doesn't matter who is auctioning it if it's well presented. So we just, yeah, now we've got 40 plus 50,000 bidder accounts. You just know, you just know that you are hitting the right numbers and, and and as you say, through these last few months, whether it's the strength of the market, whether it's the trust in our platform or whatever, but some of the results are definitely, definitely on the rise. And it's lovely to see. It just doesn't happen. Things do not slip through the net. When you've got a pool enough, big enough of buyers, there's enough of them who will grab the bargain sufficiently to push it to the right price. Yeah, you're, you're always going to have, as long as you've got, you know, like you said, a large group of buyers or potential buyers, yeah. you're always going to have the trader that's going to go, well, I can sell that for more. So there's, there's, it's always going to hit the minimum. Your offer exactly. price is just going to happen. And, and and this comes back to the other one, which is a brilliant, brilliant bit of game theory, which I know is easy for me to say because it's not my car. But when I'm talking to clients who are thinking of selling, no reserve. Oh, there's a quandary. <laughs> there is a quandary. But it is absolutely... There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Absolutely true. It's written in a million different theses, PhDs, whatever. Um, out there about game theory. Some people in the auction world say reserves distort the market. They, everything should be no reserve. It's never going to happen. And, and most people, many people are not, they just aren't wired to be able to accept it. But we can look at the data. A no reserve car gets 50%-ish more traffic on its listing than a reserved car. Yeah. And if you got that, the whole point of an auction is nothing to do with the reserve. It's about getting as many people at the final knockings who want that car for a price that's more than it currently is advertised or you know, bid to. And you've got yourself a successful, fantastic auction. And if you look at the cars that overperformed because they just had two people fighting over them, as you sort of say about some other cars you've seen, the best chance of doing that is pulling more punters in. And that comes from doing no reserve. But... Yeah, some people get it, some people don't. And some people just, you know that it's not worth trying to even gently suggest because it's not fair. I guess one you could be like, get one of your mates and go, okay, it's going for 50 quid. Like, I'll just buy it. <laughs> yeah. But it never happens. We have this sort of thing. I'll get my mates a bit on it. It'll be all right. If I can, can I? I said, you won't need to. You will not need to. I never heard that. You just won't need to. It will find it. And then... The joy is, I mean, we get lots of them, lots of these sellers. They're all nervous and, oh, is my car doing the right? Is it, oh, I haven't had a bid for three days. Yeah, 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 they're all different. And then it's a joy when they ring up the morning after a really successful auction Mm. and they say, suddenly it went bananas, didn't it? And then another bid and another one. Oh, I got the beer out then, another bid. I got the champagne then. Mm. Oh, it's just a joy to, you know, when it goes really well. How do you stop people, and we see this on say ebay all the time just bidding when they don't have the money or they're not going to buy it there is part of that fun by treating people like grown-ups i have i have when i first sort of went to a few shows and sort of explained our process a few people yeah it's new to this country nobody else was doing it and they were oh is that is that is that like ebay (laughs) and i could quite happily say yes but if i'm being sarcastic i'll say it's ebay for grown-ups and basically, it's the usual sort of thing, which is taking a, a debit or credit card to prove you're a real person, which helps you in your bidding because you know you're bidding against real people. Yeah. Do we have that? Yes, it does happen. We have somebody, we have people who have, euphemistically, you could say, a problem with the truth of their lives. Um, and yes, it's, we basically run a one strike and you're out. Okay. So there is a ban list. And thankfully, it's only gently growing. What else can you do? Um, yeah, we have a legal, legal team. They can go through the motions. CCJs can, can and have occurred. But at the end of the day, that doesn't transfer ownership from a lovely seller to a nice new buyer. No. And then, yeah, I guess you've got, you've got the other buyer's details. And you can say, hey, this is what happened. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Exactly. Um, we just have to, yeah, it's one of those, it's a cost of doing this business. Um, but I know that the stuff that we've put in place to get this far 
anecdotally, from where I've heard of other people, we have an awful lot less because of the procedures and the processes and the reviews, etc., that we've put together. Yeah. You get a lot of left-hand drive cars. I was just having a look through um, hmm. that M3 Evo. The Yeah. we. I'll tell you what, Brexit. Oh. There's made a complete change on it. Until the end of last year, we put up a left-hand drive, you know, an American import TR6 or, you know, a million different things, E-types, yeah. et cetera. And again, it, it might surprise you to hear that the vast majority of our cars don't get a viewing at all, which mm. is remarkable, astounding when you're dealing with such complicated things as classic cars and the nuances, et cetera. But people are happy with what they see and the presentation we give them. And that includes if you're in a completely other country. And so all of our left hookers were going straight back to going straight back, um, into Europe. Price of the pound, you know, the low price of the pound yeah. helped. And, and cars were just going, lorries were coming across, taking, going back all the time. But there's the VAT when you import a car now, and there's possibly the slightly more scary thing of, of, of paperwork. Yeah. And at the moment, people are... Yeah, people over in Europe, and I've heard it from people who buy cars in Europe to bring back here as well. Yeah, let's let's just work out what this paperwork really is first before we go in for the plunge and let it sort of settle out and work out what the best way of doing this is. And so the left-hand drive market, as well as taking an immediate 10 20% hit because of the VAT, you have to pay on taking yeah. it back to the continent, to your country. Um, it's taken another hit as well, just in motivation. I th I'm sure it'll come back, um, but it was a real benefit for the way our platform worked. So if you had a left-hand drive car, I don't know whether you might have a left-hand drive car, and you I, were going to sell it, would might, you be a... might have, Sam. It depends who's listening. <laughs> <laughs> would you, if you were going to sell it, would you just say, well, I guess this all comes down to the time frame one has, but if you have loads of time frame, would you just go... Okay, let's give it six months. Let's work out this paperwork malarkey, blah, 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 blah. Or a year I mean, it, and then do it. Yeah, I think I possibly would. But, yeah, as we say to people, you might miss out on that change of uh, pricing on these E-types dropping, as yeah. they were, not so now. So what you lose, yeah, swings and roundabouts. Yeah. Making investment decisions on a purely financial basis, trying to predict the future, Good luck. Have you got any rosary beads? Yeah, it's very, very tricky. Very tricky. And you could go, yeah, okay. What, do you want to sell it? If you want to sell it, you've got to sell it to get the money back. Yeah. No exactly. other options. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's one of those, you know, there are so many criteria you can try. We get so many people, you know, and, and, and I'm the same. We're all the same. Yeah, if I actually go and sell a car, I, I don't just do the right, come on then, let's just do it. I tell all the people on the phone, I, I, I'm analysing and I'm trying to work out and I'm, you know, it's, it's as bad as they are sometimes, but you try and, you try and work out the best theory. There isn't one. Just no. go and do it. And if, if you've you... got something else in mind, for God's sake, go and enjoy that. Go and sell this, go buy that. If the market's down, it'll be down for both of them probably. Exactly. And that is a really good point. You go, okay, if, you're, if it's going to go up in two years and you go, oh, yeah, but if I wait, then it might go up 200%. It's like, well, if you're actually going to go buy another car that you like is interesting, whatever, that could go up. It could go up more. Yeah. Like... It's, it's the decision also, should I do these works on it? <laughs> should I... You know, the, the, the leather's a bit tired or the, you know, should I do these works, body work, whatever it is? 
And it's impossible to say because, and that's why a dealer is good at what he does. A good dealer is good at what he does because he knows what will affect its value positive and what won't. But general maintenance, you know, and that includes replacing the clutch, doing the discs and pads, I don't know. That, that shouldn't really make a lot of difference to a car's value. You can easily spend, bodywork, yeah, it can make a difference, but you can easily spend £4,000 on something, one of those, to increase a car's value by two. It's so, so easy. And you probably got a lot of hassle, time, logistics, pain in the backside type stuff. Because I've definitely run those thoughts through my head of like, oh, I might sell a car. And then you're like, well, I've got X, Y, and Z. You kind of go, if I was to keep the car for 10 years, there's things I would do. But if I'm going to sell it, I might put off doing those things because you're like, well, like, for example, my GT3, at some point in time in the next year, probably needs some new ceramic discs on the rear. Oh, joy. And I know if I put a new set on it and sell it within six months or something, I'm not getting that value back. Or I might get a small amount of it because it's not an... 10p in the pound. Exactly. And you go, okay, so I need to work out whether I want to do it, want to keep it, all that. And do you know what? It's the best best tip if you want to. This is a brilliant tip. And if you, you've been in the market, and this has happened a lot in the last sort of 10 years, if you want to make a 100 grand Pagoda Mercedes or an E-Type or a Porsche 911, early 911, if you want to make a hundred one of those cars worth 100, I can absolutely guarantee that all you have to do is spend 150. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Put 100 grand in the boot. <laughs> Yeah, spend 150 on it and it'll be worth 100 at the end. Brilliant, great, fantastic business model. Project cars, do it for passion, not for money. Yeah, the idea, I was having this discussion with someone recently about restoring cars and the added value. And I couldn't really think of many cars or any cars because generally the more expensive ones, they're more expensive to restore. So mm. the price difference seems to be very much the price you've spent or less than. Again, if there was an automatic, buy it for 10, spend 10, and it's worth 50, we'd all be doing a different business model, wouldn't we? Exactly. And <laughs> the price of these things is so easily sort of Googleable, researchable. You can go, okay... Uh, the car's got a dent in the door, I can buy a new door, and you can find out how much it costs. So the buyer can do that as well. The seller yeah. can do it. There's not going to be a, oh, I managed to get my mate to do this, but blah, 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 blah. Like, so, sometimes you're lucky. Sometimes. Sometimes you're lucky. And, and that's because you've made your own luck. You know, you've got the right friends and all that sort of stuff. But ultimately, you, this is why many dealers are very successful and many dealers aren't. But the best way, I think, of enjoying and making a, a sensible business decision, buy something that's just lovely to start with. And, and it doesn't matter what the price level is. So a couple of weeks ago, looking around our toy shed, there were two cars that stood out for us. And they, one was an E-Type and one was a Frog Ice Bright. But you just knew, having spoken to the owner and driven it up the road and back and heard a bit about the history, etc. Both were just not just lovely, beautiful to look at, etc., but both were on so on the button mm. and so well cared for for the last umpteen years and were less likely to cost you money in the near future. That, and you could just go and enjoy them and, you know, they just stood out. They absolutely stood out. And, I mean, and, and yeah, because we could try and portray those sort of factors, um, both made extremely good money. I mean, the Frog Eye is an interesting one. 
you talk about sort of changes in the market. Frog eyes have had probably quite a tough few years because cute and wonderful and delightful as they are, they were getting for a brilliant one at sort of 25 grand. And as we all know, that's quite a high price for a car that's basically made of about four components. Yeah. Such a basic, joyous little car, but it is only made of about four or five different bits. And 25, it just gets to this point where people realise, oh, something's gone too far. Yeah. Something's gone too far. And now, yeah, that same car is high teens probably. And your point, yeah, like you, you sort of buy the owner as well as the car. Like history gives you some of that and it does, but well, it gives you a lot of that. But if you can meet the person and you know what they're like, then you can like I, you can pick up straight away with someone's like mad on details. They really care about their car, and you're like, you know what? You've had this for a while. It's probably going to be okay. So yeah, this is absolutely do as you do, don't do as you preach. Um, I can completely agree. You know, I've said to people that over this last year, COVID times, the classified model, the classified ad model, is is is, is looking fragile. Because you've got maybe six or seven photos, a home written description, it's, it's, it's limited. Mm. And you can't go and visit to actually decide how good the car is, how nice the owner is, um, and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, I've put forward this grand proposal that, you know, 200 photos, you shouldn't buy anything on less than 200 photos and a full description, etc. Obviously, I didn't go out and buy something off Facebook Marketplace at the other end of the country based on six photos did I uh, a couple of months ago? <laughs> Wouldn't be. I mean, I'd, I'd do it on something sensible and rational and yeah, reliable and easy to deal with. Something what like a buy? a Rolls Royce Silver Shadow. <laughs> nice. So do as you do, don't do as you preach. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thankfully, because I think the owner sounded quite nice and the garage looked quite shiny, you know, private garage, I thought, yeah, I'll do. I mean, it ran out of electricity on Mother's Day, so that was a bit of a downer. But apart from that, it's gone very well. Yeah, and ultimately you get drawn into these things and you go, oh, yeah, do a bit of searching. I I want that. I could possibly afford it. That's bound to be a perfect buy. Exactly. You can justify anything. Ask ask my wife. (laughs) I was going to say the same. Ignore the cars I made a great loss on. The ones I made a profit on, I'm brilliant. Just ignore those. You know, there were there were extraneous reasons. I very worryingly started doing a, like a, a Google Sheets document recently of all cars owned and current cost of the car. The ones that I own. Oh, and I think a lot of us just go, well, this is the price I paid, and nope. if I sell it for the same price, it's not cost me anything. And you, you, don't, you just ignore everything in the middle. That's cost. Sam, me. are you? Are you going to turn into one of those wonderful guys who gives us a selling pack, which includes a lovely little handwritten notebook of every single journey and the amount of fuel yes. it costs and everything else? That's lovely. We I love know people someone like that does that. Oh, yeah. Oh, the cars sell better. I'm sure they do, yeah. <laughs> Currently for sale, you've got a Chevrolet El Camino gas monkey. Was this built by the uh, gas monkey guys in America? I don't know an awful lot about this one. Um, but I believe so. And it's <laughs> featured on many, many, many of their videos okay, yeah. on YouTube and what have you, I believe. Usually, but I'm not sure because I've not, that doesn't, it's an area, I love American cars, but I don't need to do the, the, the smoke and smoke and smoke. Um, but I gather it's mostly covered in a pool of smoke. Right. Um, I get, it has 600 horsepower. It's got the most amazing 
sink. Have a look at some of our close-ups on the wheels. Sink into it. It's absolutely... The wheels are clearly milled from one large billet of aluminium. Mm. And just a phenomenal amount of swarf that must have been on the floor by the time they finished. And the, and the car, I mean, it's got a LS6, I think, in it, uh, 600 horsepower. It's not particularly happy at going slowly, yeah. but when you open it up, they're an amazing thing. And, you know, you've got a bit of history, you've got a bit of YouTube, you've got a bit of contemporary history. Yeah, that's quite cool. I, I, looking through your website today, I just started looking at some of these, and it's this era, it's this 90s, 2000s, probably ending in about 2010 for me. I look back at some cars and I just go, well, that was actually really cool. I'm looking, right now I'm looking at a BMW 850i. 1992 <laughs> like, that's the holy grail car you know what that's pretty damn cool that that's thing be- because that's a manual oh that so we're talking rare? holy grail yeah and a fabulous car um uh, the, the valueometer these modern classics so uh, these big coupes that we couldn't afford as you know mm. when they were new i don't know you're talking maserati coupes jag xkrs mercedes sls all the way up through Bentley Continentals, even the Aston, the current Vantage type cars yeah. that are all in the 10 to 20 bracket. The valueometer is frighteningly off the scale. Yeah, it's crazy. It's phenomenal. 10 grand here, 5 grand there, 20 grand there. It's absolutely, but there's a reason why. <laughs> yes. There is a reason why, and it's the potential for the Maserati to get you to your destination, not necessarily to get you back. Yeah. And the fuel bills and the, you know, these things are the other thing that I've, you know, the supply go back to supply and demand. Uh this was quite clear when we had a yeah, the the thing about modern classics is they don't die. Mm. Um, we had a Ferrari Dino in a couple of a little while ago, and when we did, there were people coming up to us saying, "Oh, I remember, I remember having one of these in the day." Even by the time it got to its first MOT, three years old, I could put my fist through the sills because <laughs> they were rotten to hell because it was an Italian car yeah. in Britain. Blah blah blah. So what we're saying here is, okay, they built quite a lot of Dinos because they were the baby car, but a hell of a lot of them just got scrapped. And we know the engines went into all sorts of other things, didn't they? And kit cars or whatever. You take a modern 458, 488, they don't rust. No. I'm sure somebody might tell me something different, but generally they don't rust. Modern cars do not rust. To write off a 458 or a 488, you have to be going some. You have to wrap (laughs) it hard around a tree. You have to make some effort. You have to use your right foot a bit stupidly. (laughs) Yeah, you you can't just accidentally break it to, to write it off. And they're building, I think, I think they build more 458, 488s in a year than they ever did Dinos. So you're back to that supply and demand curve yeah. again. There's a lot of value. Something like a 458 will run forever. They're genuinely really quite reliable in comparison to think, older Ferraris. Yeah, um, and, and like the Porsche 993 is a bit of a king of classics because the last of the air cooled and mm. it was a bloody good motor car. I think the 458 along with the 355, is already there. It'll be a pinnacle point. Yeah. Um, you know, again, it can be debated because some people say the 430 is a bit of a, yeah, the ability you get for the price on the 430 is, 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 is pretty spectacular too. And then you run into like gearboxes. That era when we start to go to sort of autos like the 458, good. 430 auto gearbox, not so good. No, exactly. Um, but then we're starting to see manual conversions on some of these cars as well now. So Yes, a couple of vanquishes out there, I gather, mm. um, that remove that gearbox and put in some manual stuff. 
Absolutely. Does that increase or decrease the value? Good question. I think Good question. as long as the conversion is available, I think it costs exactly the amount of the conversion. <laughs> Personally. <laughs> That's a, would you like to work for us? That's a diplomatic <laughs> answer. Well done. <laughs> would you like another job, Sam? <laughs> There's a, you've got a lovely DBS. This is another 2009 mm. DBS. This is another. I, I just look at so many cars of this era and go like, I remember them coming out. They're modern enough that you can, they're kind of still modern. Um, you can change the infotainment system if you want to update it a little bit. Very cool thing. You only need you only need your phone and an iPod speaker, you know, exactly a Bluetooth speaker nowadays. Anyway, you don't need, and you're going to use that for your sat nav anyway. You need ways or whatever, so you don't. Those th- that thing with buttons in the middle of the dashboard is irrelevant. That DBS is quite fantastic, but it's interesting you say those comments about it's it's old enough but young enough to be usable. Yeah, that's exactly the same reason that my parents' generation piled into those 50s and 60s cars. Mm. But you, you know, there are, there are mugs like me who love E-types and old stuff, but actually you're sort of saying that you might, yeah, you love an E-type, but you're not actually pushing yourself to go and get something of the 50s, but you would be inspired on the 90s and 2000s. Yeah, and, I, and but then I also swing massively either way, so I would quite like a, like a 1965 short wheelbase 911. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming here, Sam, that I think you are a touch younger than me. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> uh, we'll go through that later. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But but would you go for one of these resto-modded 60s cars more than you would a genuine car because it brings some of the modern stuff to you? Yes, I, I would, depending on usage, blah, 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 blah. If it was going to go racing, that's a bit different or whatever, and how much I plan on using it. If it's a car that I want to use... So I have a Resto Mod 911. It's an SC that's been backdated. But that has a sound system that works. Like, it, it generally works. Uh, more importantly, the car works. The car works. The car exactly. works every time I get in it, apart from yeah. when I had an immobilizer issue once. <clears throat> which was uh, the 90s bit. That's the that's 90s, 90s bit. the 90s bit, exactly. <laughs> I mean, we get it. We get it. A few years ago, I remember getting told this story. Fast forwards, you know, Mark One Escorts, mm. etc. And there's obviously a great uh, set of people who love those things. They can be, if they want their perfect Mexico twin cam RS2000, whatever it is, they will quite often be utterly perfect and then be put in an utterly perfect white tiled garage. And as I used to work at Ford many, many, many years ago and was an engineer down there and lived down in that neck of the woods, I can say that they're mostly probably in that neck of the woods, these garages. Mm. There was a time that the 10 grand Escort became the 20 grand, became the 30 grand, became the 40 grand. And every single time, everyone's going, come on, mates, come around, we're going to have a beer and we'll shoot some pool or whatever in my, in my man cave with, the, with my lovely Escort. It's great when you can tell them, yeah, I bought it for 20 and it's worth 30 now and I'm going to sell it to you or somebody else. And they buy it and they go, it's brilliant. I bought it for 30. It's worth 40 now. I have another beer. Great. Fantastic. Um, but, you know, maybe it's not just escorts. Things don't get used. Cars don't get used. And then eventually somebody's sort of left holding the baby and they go, I bought it for 50 and might be worth 50 still, but I'm not sure. That doesn't matter, chaps. Come on, let's have a beer. Let's put, uh, put the beers down or whatever. Let's go for a drive tomorrow. So they get, right, this, it's great. I'm going to have this escort and we're going to have a rorty old fun and pretend to be Hannah Mickler or whatever. 
and of course the car's been nowhere, so the bloody thing doesn't work. Yeah. It's got no electricity, the fuel's knackered, the carbs are out of tune, the clutch is stuck. Whatever it might be, they get halfway down the road and the, you know, something happens. It, and, and suddenly it's not so cool anymore. Especially if they haven't been driven. And it's the same with modern cars. Like I, My GT3, I've driven a couple of other ones, and I know everyone's biased, but I genuinely think mine is nicer to drive than some significantly lower, dri- lower mileage ones that I've driven mm. because they're all I the doubt. same age. Mine's got 40,000 miles on it, which is not tons for that age, but I've driven one that had 12,000 miles on it and it do- it's, it's not as good. You come to that other old chestnut, which is bang, beautiful, original versus beautifully just restored. Mm. And, and you'll get, from each camp, particularly the Bang original camp, trying to, you know, saying, but of course, but it's absolutely wonderfully original and it should be worth more. <laughs> and it kind of, yes and no. The main thing to say is that the buyer of your original one is going to be a totally different chap to the buyer of the restored car. Yeah. And they're two totally different, they often are two totally different sets of people who want to buy it. And there's no point trying to do a comparison. You might as well be comparing... Fords with Lanciers. And, and mileages, like, there seems to be a thing of, like, if it's sort of 400 miles, <laughs> crazy, rare, never been driven, worth a bazillion pounds, definitely needs to be restored before you drive it. Or <laughs> there is the, it's got 5,000 miles on it. And you're like, well, that's not, that's kind of been driven, actually, quite a lot. So it's nowhere near as valuable as the one that's basically got no miles on it. Yeah. And that curve... If, you, if, yep. you, if it's oh, an it investment off. or an art piece or something, fine. If you've got the naught miles, but you can't put any miles on it. We, it's a, it's a scary thing. The word investment grade. <laughs> yeah, we just, we don't use it. We hate it. And it's a bit like the word rust free or the word perfect. You just can't do it. You just can't do it. If any of you finds a, uh, one of our writers has put that word, those words in, please, please get up and tell me and I'll take them out and shoot them. You see investment it's, grade on some amazing, I mean, any car that's investment grade, because it's just not guaranteed, is it, at all in any way, nah, shape or form? No, nah, no, nah. no, not at all. On not something all. that intrinsically falls apart over time, how can its value and, intrinsically go up? And it was built out, of, you know, looking at the older ones, it was built out of a lovely, magnificent material called iron that instantly starts decomposing. Yeah. I wish in the UK we were allowed to depreciate our cars financially over time because as they fall <laughs> apart. You can do you, that in other are countries. You, are, you, are you justifying this to the wife again? Yeah, 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 exactly. Like if, <laughs> absolutely. If I could somehow pre-tax write off car depreciation, that would be the, the best man win ever, wouldn't it? Absolutely. There's another angle to make you look good, and us men sometimes need this uh, in this scenario is that um, it's depreciated, darling. It's depreciated and it's in the, it's in the books and it's uh, widely acknowledged that that 40 grand car should only be worth 20 now. The fact that I've sold it for 25 is superb. <laughs> Aren't I brilliant? I've made five grand. What I are know. you talking about? Out of nowhere. Alchemy. You sold a 996 X50 Turbo. Oh, yes. 911. I included the important part of that name at the very, very end. Um for 48,248, I presume, plus the buyer's no, s- There is There is no buyer's fee. Seller's fee. 
So no, th- th- what you see is what you pay. What you bid is what you pay. Full okay, stop. so the buyer paid that. The buyer paid that. He bid that and he paid that. Makes it simple. So what does the seller pay? Uh, the seller pays us 5% plus VAT of that value okay. and therefore receives 94% of what the buyer paid. Yeah. So that's a, that's a fundamental, you could call it a buyer's fee, call it a seller's fee. All the buyers are sensible. They know that they've got to, if they've got a buyer's fee, they've got to add it to what they bid. So they bid accordingly. Yeah. So ultimately it makes no difference. We do genuinely think that having a seller's fee rather than a buyer's fee does help in logistics and uh, sale actual completion. There are, oh, it's not worth going into the details, but um, we do think it makes a massive difference to actually the eBay problem. But yes, so 94%. And obviously, if you do this at one of the physical guys, they've got the buyer's fee of maybe 10 or 15, 20%. And that's 20%, 15% that the seller does not receive. And they might have a seller's fee as well. <laughs> uh, exactly. So, exactly. But that car sold for 48 grand. That to me sounds like a lot for a 996 Turbo. It was good, wasn't it? It did a lot more than the seller was hoping for, and it did a lot more than we were expecting. With a bit of hindsight, we looked at the man maths again, or whatever you sort of you can do, it, and it still made a very good price. But it was an X fifty. It had the right gearbox. Tiptronic, I'm afraid, is 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 more and more becoming less and less desirable yeah. as these things become enthusiast cars instead of day to day cars. And it had fifty thousand miles with a good history, and it didn't appear to have any flaws particularly in it. So it was a little bit of a holy grail kind of car. Mm. It was a little bit of a sweet spot. Um, But we have got now, it's interesting, we are shaking up the business model. We've only grown organically. We do not ring round to all sorts of dealers or anybody looking for stock. And and when I say that to people in the trade, their eyebrows raise, which is quite nice, quite nice. We've made it as a company policy. So a higher proportion than probably normal come from private hunters, private mm-hmm. sellers. We have now got quite a few small-scale dealers. Maybe they're dealers who don't do a massive internet or whatever. They're, they're old school or maybe it's something like that. And they've given us cars that are they've had on their website at 26 grand for a year. Yeah. Given it to us, reserve of 19, and we got 26 and a half. <laughs> and then we did it with an MGB and then we did it with their Mini Cooper and they're going, I don't need to actually have a front here. Yeah. I just, I like the buying. Buying is fun. We all like buying. It's the selling that can be a bit awkward, whether you're in the trade or private. And they're kind of coming to the conclusion, they just buy and then they titivate if they want to and just send it straight to us. There's a, there's a, a change, a fundamental change in the business model. Yeah. And it makes, it makes sense if, if a company like yours is incredibly efficient and quick, the main thing is the time, the timeline. It's going to sell within a week. It's, it's the fact you get 94% of what the buyer pays and you get it done in a few weeks. Absolutely. You could be off buying again. Yeah. The, I mean, the only people that really make money out of classic cars are people that are buying and selling them. No one else. Everyone else maybe makes some money. But the people that guaranteed to make money in the car park is if you buy it for low and sell it for more. Um, buy high, sell low. Exactly. <laughs> or oh, did I get that the wrong way round? Yes. Sell low, buy high. No, yes. I think that was Harry Enfield, circa 19, 1992, I think. But no, it seems it seems, and it makes sense because if you're if you have a website, if you're a dealer and you have a website, the number of people that are going to see your website, unless you're super sort of famous, is really small. Yeah, we, we What happens is, that, I mean, this is one thing that our market, best marketing tool, and the thing that I think gets us our best exposure is our mailing list now it has i think it's about a 50 60 70 percent frequently open it 
Okay. And there are 45,000 people on it. Hmm. Now, that's getting that's, – that's, you know, normally if you do cold call, cold email sort of round robins, you're happy if you get 2% open rate sometimes. Yeah. And we've got 60% frequently open it. It's going under the noses of people. Maybe some of them are busy, wealthy, got a lot on, and they haven't got time to look at the classifieds once a week to check on their five favourite models or whatever it is, just in case something fresh has turned up. No, no, but they do look at ours, and they flick through it going, nah, nah, no, nah, 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 nah. And then they go, I've always wanted one of those. Hang on a minute. Click, check it out, buy it. Do you have a feature on your website for alerts? On certain cars, we are putting it in. Okay, we are putting it in. Um, it's a it's a thing missing. So yes, if you want a Jaguar from the nineteen seventies, tell me about any Jaguar from the nineteen seventies. It's being put together. Cool. Because again, it comes with the volume. Because we're now getting serious volume. Um, it's something that uh, is recognised delinquent. Yeah. Thank you for that, Sam. Would you like to join the development team? <laughs> <laughs> that, that absolutely seems like a feature because I, you know, you browse, I, you've got Autotrader, whatever, all this sort of stuff, your website, other ones. And you, I see so many cool things come through or someone might send me you know, WhatsApp like, oh, this, look at this car. But I may not have found it. I wouldn't necessarily guarantee to be find it. But there is definitely, I would love to know, are any of this sort of thing for sale? Um, yeah. And then I think some people have very good friends that seem to have a little bit too much time. I've got someone <laughs> that I know who is, he knows what I'm sort of looking for at the moment. And he's, he's, he's amazing. Like he just, he's like this in this, blah, blah, blah. And I found this car in France. You're like, oh mate, you are so helpful. <laughs> I don't need friends like that. My <laughs> friends will tell me that. I find them myself too many, too many. I don't need anybody suggesting more. <laughs> That's it. You always get to the point of like, Okay, but like, I need to really need to sell this car first. Yeah. Before. I have produced cars on the driveway. Friends will know this. Um, and then run into the kitchen, grabbed the bottle of wine, given the, poured it into a glass, taken it quickly to the wife and said, here, look, have a glass of wine. <laughs> it's a lovely evening, isn't it, dear? <laughs> What's the matter with enthusiasm? Yeah, it's a hobby. Apart from the time I went upside down around Zanfort, it's absolutely harmless. <laughs> <laughs> what was that story? Oh, racing the caterham. Ah. And here's it. And, and, and somebody on the last corner, which they've banked now, haven't they, for the new Formula One, they've put a f- magnificent banking on it. Well, in your caterham, it was flat anyway. Hmm. And, I mean, that's about the only track you need fifth gear, that and Goodwood, the only tracks I need fifth gear for that car. And you're using fifth gear about a quarter of the way down the start-finish straight, let alone the rest of it. I mean, it's a slipstream mayhem yeah. with these caterums. But the last corner is therefore flat. And some <clears throat> chap in front of me went a little bit wide, uh, hit the gravel on the outside, bouncy-bouncy, came across me across the track. I tried getting out of the way. Ooh. but And I had my foot in to try and keep out of the way, but it was wheel on wheel on a caterum is never a great thing. There's some good footage it went over and over, Ooh. but it's the same car I still have. There was a, a time when I was a YouTube sensation. Ooh. And a man of my age, that's quite a thing. If you put, I think if you do still put it in, my name and Zanfort, it comes up. Because by sheer chance, there was a, a sort of internet TV crew on the outside of the corner. And little did we know, but two days later, everyone was sending me links to it. Well, that's a nice memorando to have the video. Cause... Of my car being destroyed. Yes, 
Yeah, because at least you know, like, wh- whether it was your fault, not your fault, all that sort of stuff. Uh, I, d- I was clear. I was clear. Uh, and, uh, but the, uh, the, the in-car camera kept rolling yeah. for another sort of 30 minutes, as you do. I'd been taken off. I was absolutely fine, thankfully. And uh, I never hit anything solid. That was the joy. And it's all sand there, of course, next to the seaside. So it was all fine. But um, we looked at the footage later of this in-car camera until the battery died you mm. know, three hours later. And, of course, you see something happen and it's all very quick and there's sand flying across the screen and you can't see what's going on. You can't even tell how many times I might or might not have gone over. But then it just sits there. It landed on its wheels, wheel, more accurately, and then after the race had finished, red flag and all that, the marshals started picking up bits and putting them in the car. And this camera picks it all up perfectly. A small bit of glass fibre wing. A, a suspension strut. A whole suspension, you know, springs and everything. Oh, a spring on its own this time. A whole front corner dumped in it. They're very and good so, at collecting uh, bits of cars, aren't they, Marshall? Yeah. I, I, you could tell, I, I you know, ring back and say, you didn't put the... Uh, <laughs> You did put the driver nut behind the steering wheel back in, but apart from that, everything else. Kids oh, times. Dear. Right, well, Indeed. I normally wrap these up with five questions. Do you have a most memorable driving trip or journey? Ah, do you know what? Recently, I reminded myself about this. It was just over a year ago, and we went for a typical uh, group of gang of chaps, and we went on a green laning over in Wales. Some guys who know some good green lanes, we join in, five or six of us. And up till then, I'd taken the Land Cruiser because it was my 4x4. I'm not a big 4x4 fan, but it was there for towing. So I could take that. And the problem was it wouldn't squeeze between the gates, gate posts, because mm. Amazon and what have you. But the other problem was it was too damn competent. So I went and 18 months ago, I paid two and a half grand for a Panda 4x4. Nice. An old boxy Panda 4x4. With some rusty doors, it was cat D because somebody hit the A-pillar at some point, but it didn't matter. It all still fitted genuinely largely. It came with several diseases, I think, um, but uh, but it just there. And we just took that. I took that as a humorous, and whether I was driving or passengering, whoever was in the car, the whole Green Lane experience, we were laughing and giggling. And that you kind of forget sometimes yeah. about what about a car, a special car journey is about. Ah, and two, two and a half K, I mean, the thing got flooded. I mean, it had more diseases by the end, I suspect, but it got stuck in puddles because you always had to dodge the, the central stones. But if you were in a big puddle, you couldn't see them. So, yeah, a friend in a discovery would just tag on the back of it and push it through. And then we'd sort of, Wicked. you know, pour out the pour out the water, most of it, <laughs> and then carry on. And it was just, you had to actually drive it instead of talking about the weather. Yeah. So you had to dodge the stuff, and it was hilarious. That sounds like wicked fun. I need it to, is. Need it to is. They were all in their. They were all in their defenders that broke down. I will stress, <laughs> Michael, and had to re- need some Fiat Panda bits, Michael, to fix your defender. Um, but yeah, absolutely fabulous, I, great fun. And that that that, 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 that it, we forget sometimes. You talk about the money. You talk about mm. massive wings, um, Ferrari V12s, whatever it might be. But actually. Some friends and just a laugh is, is what sometimes what it's all about. It is. And it makes these amounts of money you've made, lost, generally lost, spent. Like that's, that's all you get back at the end of the day, like, is the memories with some mates. Yeah. Getting stuck, not getting stuck. Exactly. Visiting a restaurant, 
some cool scenery, whatever, that's all the stuff. And I think yep. I constantly have to sort of try and remind myself that that is what is the most fun thing about having cars is using them. And if you're not using them, get rid and find something that will use more or just drive the ones you've got more and plan stuff and, and get in there. Whether it be North Coast 500, you know what? There are prettier places than Rockingham. <laughs> <laughs> is, is Rockingham shut now? Yeah, yeah. I, I I don't know if it's... It was bought by one of these um, storage companies that needed to store lots and lots and lots yeah. and lots of cars, you know, second-hand or uh, lease cars or something. And I gather they were all parked up all over the skid pan and all over the banking and all over every every bit yeah. of tarmac. I sort of wonder if I've heard things that suggest it's sort of half open again or something like that. Oh. Uh, not as a racetrack, but as, you know, you could do, I don't know, press days or something. I, I, I don't know. I know it hasn't been knocked down. There's a C1 story there. We went to our first C1 event with the car on that, uh, at Rockingham. And, you yeah, know, been there a few times before. And you pull up and you find out that because we were in the minor C1 race, not the 24-hour race, we went... And we were in the outside paddock just on the behind the grandstand on the exit of turn one. Yeah. The bank corner. And got there uh late late-ish one evening and sort of poddled around, started unloading, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, uh in no rush. And then realized I was thinking, oh, it's very quiet. And I'm behind one of those grandstands that never got used again mm. after the first year or whatever. And then went, I wonder when they're gonna start the track action. You know, it should be qualifying or practice for these c1s and there's 70 of them here or something like that looking at my watch and then um pop my head just round the back of this open grandstand you know scaffolding isn't it it's not it's not a closed environment and poke my head over and realize they'd been running all this time but just they're that quiet that you just don't know you don't know they're running mad they are hilarious things and they're so i remember asking someone about the engines and i was like like no the the great thing about that car is even in race form it's so unstressed like it doesn't use that much fuel three hours on a tank if it's wet no problem like the engines last forever because they don't rev that high like it's just yeah do a hundred thousand miles no problem whatsoever we our car did 90 hours of racing plus all the testing and qualifying but nine i think it was was that that was three 24-hour races that we did in that poor little thing and before we sort of decided it's, we took it round the back and shot it um, and put its, put its guts, put its guts into another car. And it was still doing, and I'm sure it was probably doing better. In some ways, the engine was probably as sweet as. Admittedly, as we took the cage out, the first bolt that we removed out of the cage to transfer it to the new car, literally, as we took that bolt out, the car moved six inches. <laughs> Boom! Bang! And it was an almighty crack. Um, yeah, the cage was holding the car together. But we were still on our original windscreen, which if you've ever done C1s, you know That's is a, quite an achievement. Right, five-car garage, unlimited value. Well, you might be back to the Stratos. You certainly would be back to the E9 BMW, the CS, CSI. Not too bothered if... Oh, no, except the Batmobile. Ooh. The CSL Batmobile has to be one of mine. The 355 Ferrari, the McLaren F1. Ah, now you might notice a trend here. It comes from my engineering background. I think all of these cars have been built by absolutely fabulous engineers and engineering. Hmm. So to turn the 348 into the 355 had Luca Montezemolo at the top doing something amazing and he drove his team to do something remarkable. Uh, The McLaren F1, I mean, everyone knows about that. Just all this thing about 
Kenwood had to make a new stereo to be half the weight of a normal stereo. Just the whole thing is just attention to detail and designed by one man, essentially. One vision. Yeah, and the other one that I'll put in the same category, in fact, there's a pair of them that I might put in the same category that I think I'd take, um, the Alpha Sud. The Alpha Sud? What is that? The Alpha Sud, the 1970s tiny hatchback attempt at putting employment into south of Italy at Naples, Utterly phenomenal little car. Had one as my second car, always wanted one. The most free-revving, gorgeous engine that you've ever come across. The handling is superb. And again, it was built by one man. Essentially designed essentially designed um, together by one man. Shrijaro did the uh, did the styling afterwards as well, um, as part of. Cool. But uh, cool is it Rudolf Huriska who did that? Fabulous car. Uh, you can't own one. Well, yeah, I've got one in the garage. I brought it back from Malta. That was a challenge, driving it all the way back. But, um, yeah, they fall apart and they whatever, but they are <laughs> the most glorious, glorious things. And I guess if you're going to do money, no object, you go barking. You go for the crazy stuff. Mm. And there are three cars in my mind that sit at the crazy end of the world. Mm-hmm. Obviously 70s biased because, you know, there was a bit of engineer sort of push in the 70s wasn't there There there's a bit of free-for-all going on yeah i've had one of these the mercedes saloon the 6.9 though the 6.9 beast that has the massive engine that they had to dry sump just to fit it under the bonnet (laughs) has citroen style well citroen suspension that was completely re-engineered so it actually worked fabulous thing yeah the twice the price of the normal 450 saloon the 6.9 so there's one the next one along well it's a challenge isn't it which is the maddest car? Is it the Citroen SM or is it the Aston Martin Lagonda? But you put the three and they are right at the pinnacle yeah. of barking, what were they on? But thank God they exist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love the story that the SM, you know, it came from the fact that Citroen, who'd only made, I don't know, money in five years out of 70 in the whole of its life, 60 or whatever it was, was decided that it was a really good idea to merge with a company that um, had made money in perhaps six years in 70 years of its life, Maserati. So they merged, and th- that was obviously a match made in heaven. You put a Maserati engine in a Citroen suspension, absolutely phenomenal, amazing thing. And when the specialists now deal with them, they, they can make them work properly, and they do work pr- amazingly. But when Peugeot, when Citroen went bust again and Peugeot were brought in, one of the first things I believe they did was they went straight back down to the factory that makes Citroen SM and they said, stop, <laughs> do nothing, literally nothing. Nothing leaves these factory gates ever again because the warranty costs and everything else were just crippling. And they literally said, no, nope, we're just going to break these all. I think they broke them down for spare parts. I don't know. But yeah. they were basically, it didn't matter if even the thing was finished. It was financially better <laughs> not to sell the thing. And those are always interesting cars, aren't they? The ones that make cost ah, far yeah. too much to make. So wait, okay, so where did we get? We had, did you get to five? I don't know. Yeah, I'm claiming five. Okay. I might have done seven, but I'm claiming okay, five. Claim five. You- I'll, I'll, I'll claim the seven on the fact that three of them would never be actually all running at the same time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you could only drive one car for the rest of your life and you're allowed a £500 banger on the side. Easy. Easy. I've got one. Best car in the world. Uh, Again, maybe it should be in the five-car garage because it's just so bloody competent at everything. I'll say the E39 M5 Mm. BMW because the E39 is one of the best engineered saloons ever made 
and then the M5. That's I don't get the more modern M5s after that. Yeah, that would do absolutely everything. Job done. Uh, I had an accident with mine where the rear silencers got taken away, and a small bit of stainless steel tubing was replaced replaced them. And I don't know how it happened, it but it's made the car slightly noisy as well. <laughs> yeah, it's an accident. I can't imagine how this happened what do you think is the most undervalued car at the moment what should be worth more wow obviously not on your platform uh, because that's exactly the price that they are but what's what should be <laughs> worth more do you think tricky one no idea um i could do that with hindsight very good at that <laughs> i mean i think bang for buck the 996 porsche is phenomenal yeah but it is because there are a lot of them around yeah the box the mx5 to the boxster to the 996 is an amazing chain of competent fun usable cars difficult to say i i always say oh it's obviously at it's right value now and that's why it's not higher and then six weeks later it's gone higher and i go oh yeah yeah i was right but i didn't have no conviction <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you could have said you know it's again with hindsight the quattro you know that was about two years ago that was half the price it is now and 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 you were i was thinking oh, that looks a bit undervalued you know yeah you know, double the price in germany and all that yeah that sort of yeah there's loads of cars in that sort of category, but they're kind of, they're coming up now. They're getting yeah, to that point yeah. where they're not cheap anymore. Or not, they're not that they were ever cheap, but just less. And you had, you had a R32 GTR. Mm. Fabulous, iconic car. And you were thinking, yeah, but there's a lot of them around and there's some nice unmodified ones for late teens. And you blink and they're in the 30s. Yeah. And I think, I, I, I fully believe those cars will keep going up because exactly. this general, like my generation the sort of playstation generation those were all there they were absolutely the cars right final question most interesting car to you at the moment i might refer to i might i might i'm wondering if i start referring to previous answers almost because <laughs> um, i've rattled off a few crazy things uh and and i like them for being interesting for being a bit crazy i'll tell you what we did have that was barking and interesting but crazy um, a few months ago, we had a little. It was it was a Messerschmitt, but it wasn't one of those Messerschmitt bubble car of the nineteen fifties. But it wasn't. It was actually a modernised version, and apparently there was some chap in the nineties who made the glass fibre kit, and then he put it on some motorbike bits, some Triumph or something nineteen nineties motorbike bits. So again, you could call it an early resto mod, mm. and it was this proper little thing. And if you know about these things, they've got. Uh, what looks like a fighter pilot Messerschmitt canopy and all that. And it was a slam dunk for the, the original item, but done in glass fibre and and possibly a bit more reliable and a bit faster. Interesting, yes. But it had um, like a cart, steering like a cart. Mm. So you literally breathed on it and it, was, it had gone in a different way. When you realise that you are two foot high to a grasshopper, knee high to a grasshopper, sorry, and you are right next door to a bloody great lorry on a motorway, that will they be overtaking you? In the 1950s, that didn't happen. But this, I mean, it's interesting and it's mad, but you kind of feel there's almost certain death involved. Yes, yes. And you'd rather not have death when you're having a car. But interesting and fantastic. But, yeah, the world is slightly... It's like, hey, look, if you only potter down to the pub in it, it'd be lovely, great fun, but very interesting. And never, and, and, never go on a motorway. <laughs> Yes, cried out loud. You know, there have been cars in and you're kind of going, hmm, there's quite a lot of possible death involved in this one, I suspect. (laughs) And good to look at, good to know the story of, but I'm I'm not so keen for death. 
Yeah. Yeah, that didn't come with it. And people go like, oh, yeah, but it's fine. I'm like, until it's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, good luck. The world was a different place when it was built or a design, originally <laughs> yeah. designed. Or someone was smoking too much. But I, that, uh, that, that was a very cool-looking thing, that Messerschmitt bubble car job. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Mad. Well, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Absolute pleasure, Sam. Absolute pleasure. And for those listeners that haven't noticed, the market is actually the main sponsor for the Car Chat podcast. But I think it's probably because I like what you guys do. You like what we do. And mm. it's, it's, I, I, I absolutely have to say, without the sponsorship of the market at the moment, there, there probably would be no podcast. It just there we go. It doesn't stack up. So I'm, I'm very grateful for you guys sponsoring. I'm, I'm so glad that we're keeping you out of living in cardboard boxes. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sure I can find a, 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 a motorway, um, a motorway flyover for you to live under, Sam. Thank, if thank we you. if we pull the sponsorship, if, if it comes to that. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Cool. Well, thanks very much. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.